Hey marketers, if you want to get the latest news, trends, and insights in marketing, advertising, and tech, check out the Adweek Podcast Network. Learn from leading voices across media and marketing with original shows like Yeah, That's Probably an Ad, Marketing Vanguard, and Tech Magic with Kathy Hackle. Start listening now by searching Adweek wherever you listen to podcasts. My dad works in B2B marketing. He came by my school for career day and said he was a big ROAS man. Then he told everyone how much he loved calculating his return on ad spend. My friends still laugh at me to this day. Not everyone gets B2B, but with LinkedIn, you'll be able to reach people who do. Get $100 credit on your next ad campaign. Go to linkedin.com slash generate to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash generate. Terms and conditions apply. LinkedIn, the place to be, to be. Hey there, are you ready to elevate your personal brand or company? Meet Viral Growth, your one-stop shop for video content and audience building. Imagine growing your brand organically on social media without the hassle of editing videos for hours. With Viral Growth, it's a breeze. They handle the brainstorming, scripting, and editing while you simply just hit record. And don't worry about your niche. They cater to everyone, from business and marketing to health and wellness. Are you ready to make waves in the social media realm? Visit viralgrowth.io and use code ADWEEK, that's A-D-W-E-E-K, all lowercase, and get 10% off your plan. You're listening to Yeah, That's Probably an Ad. This is the Adweek podcast where we talk about marketing, media, advertising, pop culture, technology, because in the end, everything's an ad. I'm David Greiner. I'm an editor with adweek.com. With me as he is each week is Tim Nutt, our creative editor. Tim, thanks as always for joining us. Thanks for having me. Of course. Uh, we've also got back on the podcast, uh, producer on the podcast and uh, staff writer at Adweek, Christina Monlos. Welcome back, Christina. I'm really excited to talk about this mother boob thing. All right. <laughs> That's just coming in coming in hot. Mm-hmm. All right. And also back with us is Patrick Coffey, senior editor uh, covering the agency Beat. Uh, Patrick, welcome back to the podcast. Thanks, David. All right. Uh, as Christina's already set the bar so high. I feel, I feel like we should just like jump right to uh, the mother boob, but uh, we'll, we'll wait. We got so much like we've got uh, Tim and I were talking about this before the podcast. We've got like tequila. Uh, we've got a giant, a giant boob. We've got um, uh, what were some of the other things uh, lined up today? We will be talking about nuts. Yeah, right yeah, now, so. nuts. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So like, I don't even think we need like an advisory because this is all just work safe, totally appropriate discussion of of. All these things. So let's dive on in. Uh, today we're going to be talking about uh, the week's news, which uh, is going to be a lot about YouTube and advertisers getting uh, increasingly upset about appearing around objectionable content. We'll talk about what they're doing there and some of the big announcements uh, in that on that front this week. Uh, we're going to talk about a similar effort uh, to try to get advertisers off of Breitbart, a site that we've talked about quite a bit uh, due to its connection to everything from uh, Donald Trump uh, to Steve Bannon uh, and their kind of generally... Uh, polarizing philosophies, I guess, let's say. Uh, And uh, we're also going to have Tim walk us through all the ads worth watching this week. And then we're going to get to our big discussion, which this week is our CMTO issue in the magazine, uh, which is uh, Chief Marketing Technology Officer. So basically about how more more and more CMOs are having to be tech uh, experts. So we're going to get to that in just a minute. But first, the news. 
Patrick has a story in this week's uh, print edition. I'm excited to have him talk about it. A group called, uh, is, it, is it Sleeping Giants singular or Sleeping Giants plural, Patrick? It's plural. All right. So Sleeping Giants, uh, it's it's a anonymous group uh, that basically is kind of a grassroots effort to flag down any advertisers whose ads, whether intentionally or unintentionally through network buys, are popping up on uh, Breitbart. Uh, so tell us about how you found out about this group, Patrick, and uh, kind of what they're what they're like and what your conversations with them were like. Well, I had um, seen it around primarily on social media. It started as a single Twitter account, and it was just a case of uh, the way I came across it was people who I followed sharing uh, this account's sharing of screenshots of ads on um, ad on articles that were deemed objectionable on Breitbart. Uh, and they had all sorts of different subjects. Um, it's a uh, site that is known for being intentionally provocative uh, from the right-wing perspective. And uh, I, after encountering quite a few of these tweets, I decided that it was probably time to reach out to the group independently. And I ended up having a fairly extensive email back and forth with the spokesperson who may or may not also be the founder. So, yeah, I mean, you, you uh, obviously everyone talked on condition of anonymity. Can, do you have a sense of how big this group is? Uh, frankly, I think it's just a few people. It started, I know that it began as one guy who has a day job somewhere in the marketing industry. I believe it to be in the agency world, but I was unable to pin that down. And that over time, it has grown to include people who work on it on a voluntary basis. And I believe they're based all around the world. If you note, if you follow the main Twitter account, there are a series of regional accounts based everywhere from, I think, uh, Denmark and Great Britain. And um, I think that all of the United States is covered by the main account. And then it centers on a Facebook page that um, shares related things. So it's, I get the sense that it is the one person and then that there are a series of volunteers that c could be anywhere from, I don't know, five to a few dozen. It depends on, on um, how many different people are running the respective Twitter feeds. So, yeah, just to be clear, so we're talking about... Uh, it's not so much like a, a Kellogg's type company necessarily buying direct ads on Breitbart as it is you as a consumer might have gone to the Kellogg's website and then you go to Breitbart and you see a Kellogg ad because it's retargeting you, right? I mean, that's most of these aren't direct buys so much as just retargeting a network. Uh, yes, right? more, more. It's like maybe you read an article on men's fitness and Kellogg's wants to target people who read men's fitness who also happen to possibly read Breitbart. So then the ad will kind of follow you onto Breitbart. Ah. And that's that's the sense I get of program, programmatic buying. Um, and everyone cites the, the development of programmatic as one of the main facilitators of this controversy uh, because there's a sense that brands have less control over where their ads appear. And certain people, I think most, this is a gross generalization, but I think most consumers know that when you see an ad next to a headline that, that it's not the corporate entity embracing or, you know, endorsing that headline. But at the same time, it's just, um, as, as one media agency executive put it to me, there's very little that's more compelling than seeing a screenshot of your brand's logo next to something that you just don't want to be associated with. So 
I believe that most of the brands contacted by Sleeping Giants have said we are going to blacklist Breitbart in order to avoid this sort of thing in the future. Yeah, I mean, I guess on the one hand, I was kind of surprised by our, our survey that Christopher Heine wrote about that, um, you know, basically a third of, of people surveyed said that when they see an ad around content, controversial content, that they, they do see that as an endorsement by that brand. You know, on the one hand, I feel like, oh, that's kind of naive because we all we all know these things are kind of robot driven. Uh, but on the other hand, if you saw an advertiser on a porn site, you know, say you would think, oh, well, they knew they were going to end up on a porn site. Like this is a conscious decision. They didn't accidentally end up here. And so, you know, that's the, kind of the way I thought about it, where I was like, eh, OK, I guess I can see how people might think that this is an intentional uh, choice and, and this this all segues to the other huge story of the week, uh, which is just the complete. Uh, it feels very sudden, but this just avalanche of uh, of brands turning against YouTube and a few other content networks, uh, but but primarily it's happening on YouTube, where there has been controversial and despicable content uh, since the site launched. What in two thousand six seven. Uh, you know, it's a decade-old site, and it's always had gross stuff on it. But it just seems like in the last uh, few weeks, months, maybe, it, this has really become a global conversation. Uh, Patrick, you and I have talked about this offline. What what changed? Like, what happened that suddenly made this a huge story? Well, the, the take that I got from the media side is that it was uh, had been building for years, um, essentially since Google came to be, um, and that the real tipping point was the acceptance by most marketers that YouTube was now an essential ad buy. And I think that there were a couple of particular controversies based in Europe that really made it explode. I know that there was a Jaguar ad that ran before an ISIS recruitment video. That's might not be exactly accurate, but that's how it was described to me. And there were several others I examples of these pro-terrorism videos that had ads either running above them, before them, or around them. And uh, the, the funny thing is that none of these videos were new necessarily. I think that it was just too much at once, maybe, and also a case of marketers who have been grumbling about Google for years and years, finally seeing an opportunity to, you know, this is our chance to force them to act. And uh, the other, you know, big thing that's happened in this, uh, in the last few months on this, on this topic is PewDiePie, who is the number one most followed, most watched uh, personality on YouTube, uh, very abruptly got dumped by his uh, studio, by Maker Studio. He got removed from Google's preferred ad buy uh, program uh, because he made uh, several attempts at humor uh, mocking the Holocaust. And he has since come out and tried to explain some of that, but it hasn't really helped his you know, personal brand in the sense of the way that brands feel about him. I'm sure he's still very popular with, uh, you know, with viewers, but not necessarily with people wanting to advertise around him. How much of this, uh, Christina, how much of, uh, of all this fallout that we're seeing around YouTube in particular do you think is related to, to PewDiePie's kind of abrupt implosion? Yeah, I think, uh, I think PewDiePie was kind of the straw that broke the camel's back. I think this was something that people were quietly talking about for a while that, you know, there were issues around you know where where stuff was placed and what it was placed around but you know when you have uh 
<laughs> when you have something like this with a m major personality and then, um, you know, the brands associated with it, it just, uh, I don't know, makes people talk about it a lot more and then it brings light to a whole other slew of issues. I think also that what happens is when a story like that breaks, um, journalists are more likely to, uh, you know, pick up on it and start looking for stuff. And, and a lot of this wave of, of um, you know, questioning YouTube has come because journalists have, have taken some of these screenshots and have built stories around around them, um, which, you know, I think, you know, um, when, 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 when advertisers didn't see this stuff, you know, they kept it, turned a blind eye to a lot of it. Um, wasn't an issue but suddenly now it is an issue yeah i mean it's certainly easier to uh to say like we didn't know when there aren't a bunch of stories in like the wall street journal or other organizations about it yeah the, this is like the easiest uh kind of problem to document versus something as esoteric as when we talk about uh view viewership fraud with ads like how many of these views on these ad buys were bots versus people or were in the wrong countries or whatever or they were purchased you can't illustrate that right you have to be on the back end of it and have access to all sorts of information about that to to prove it to prove that that someone's ad ran in front of a ISIS recruitment video that's really easy <laughs> like mm -hmm. you just you literally just take a screenshot yeah. and we had an entire story the other day because a Wall Street Journal uh reporter took a, a screenshot of a YouTube uh original movie uh from their paid service they were running an ad for it uh in front of a, a video with a racist name uh about Michelle Obama and they just took a screenshot and it's literally like here is a YouTube ad running on top of this video where you can see the name that's all it takes yeah, and it's also interesting, I think, YouTube has done a pretty good job over the years, quite honestly, of maintaining a, a pretty family-friendly, kind of sunny brand personality, you know, in spite of some of the stuff that gets uploaded to the to the platform. And so, I mean, obviously, Breitbart has become kind of a toxic name. Uh, you know, if you mention to a lot of, you know, any advertiser, like, hey, you're on Breitbart, suddenly there might be like a panic moment. You know, this, that's not true with YouTube. And so this slide for them has been, as you say, David, it's been rapid and it's got to be pretty frightening. And, uh, you know, their their ability to to deal with this properly is going to is going to be pretty critical for them. Yeah. And, and I think what we're going to see is, is two things. You, you're going to see the price of I mean, that's all of this happens because it's cheap, right? Because it's affordable to buy your ads this way. This kind of like blind wherever people go, you know, put my ads there. That has kept the cost low. Uh, but I think you're going to see uh, the, that cost start to go up as people move from blacklisting specific sites to preemptively whitelisting which sites they do want to appear on. That's way more labor intensive. It's way more selective. Anytime you deal with those aspects, you're, you're ramping up the cost of your buy a whole lot. So in the big scheme of things, I think it's a good trend. I think it's a good thing for all these companies to be going through. But on the other, I hope they're prepared for the impact it's going to have on their budgets because it's not going to be small. Um, I definitely encourage everybody to check out on adweek.com. We have all sorts of articles. I feel like every day, uh, Patrick or our tech team have had an article about this, about the story of the fallout on YouTube, about uh, the consumer reaction, about the media reaction. Uh, and and I, I, to Patrick's point, I think Sleeping Giants and uh, Breitbart, uh, that story is kind of all related. So all these are really one big massive trend that is defining uh, this year already uh, on the advertising side. So let's move on to one other uh, piece of a slightly more 
uh, I, I guess, less wonky news, but at the same time still kind of sad. Uh, Virgin America, the airline brand uh, that is only 10 years old. They have only been flying for 10 years. I think they were founded 12 years ago. Uh, they are retiring. They were uh, purchased by Alaska Airlines uh, in a about a $4 billion deal. And as of 2019, uh, Alaska Airlines announced in the last week uh, they are going to phase out the Virgin America brand altogether. Uh, Richard Branson, who, of course, is the scion of the Virgin Empire, um, basically wrote a very touching kind of heartfelt letter to all the employees and the customers of Virgin America this this is to me a fascinating brand. It's, I mean, it's it's very similar to in in the sense of the brand tone and message. It's similar to the other Virgin brands, but this is one where he really came in and basically said flying shouldn't suck. Like flying should be a decently enjoyable experience. Like it was. I, I noticed he literally in his uh, letter he didn't say that his goal was to make flying great again because <laughs> because he knew like how that might sound. But he said like make flying good again <laughs> so the, like i think i think he retroactively kind of stepped down his his goal but um you know he just wanted it to be enjoyable and one of the first things they pioneered was this idea of on-demand entertainment on the back of uh, of a seat you know where you didn't have the crappy little monitor in the middle of the aisle uh, you actually got to choose they were one of the first to have wi-fi on their planes all of these are things that of course have been really embraced by the the the, the much bigger carriers uh, namely delta which has become very consumer uh, you know customer experience oriented so i i do think that it's not hyperbole when he says that he dramatically kind of changed the priorities of the industry at least for certain ones i think if you look at delta uh, which I, I'm, I'm a big fan of Delta as someone who flies a lot. I, I think their experience is much better than, you know, a United, say. Uh, but, you know, I think so much of this has been cues they've taken from Virgin America. Uh, and a lot of people were really dinging um, Alaska for making this decision and for state. They, and they, their logic that they announced was, well, you know, we're, we're building it. We want to become the preeminent West Coast uh, airline. And so kind of like Southwest is for the Southwest, they just want to be the full West Coast. So Alaska Airlines made more sense. I don't know if I buy that. I, I think, honestly, this is something we've seen time and again with America brands that have been spun off. I, I mean, Vir Virgin brands that have been spun off is that uh, I, I think Branson just likes to keep really tight control on that brand. And so I wouldn't be surprised if this was kind of written into the contract somewhere that, you know, it's it, it can't exist without Richard Branson. But I, I could be wrong. Um, but, uh, I don't know, Tim, how would you say that brand has kind of stood out from the other airlines? Well, as with anything that Branson, Richard Branson does, I mean, he's a pretty masterful marketer in general. And, you know, in, in, the, in the airline space, it's pretty difficult to, to, you know, to give people a good experience, it seems like. And, and Virgin America always had that um, really fun sort of forward-pushing uh, vibe. You know, I, I did want to mention they had a, one of my favorite ads uh, of, of the last couple of years was was done by the San Francisco Agency 11 for Virgin America, where they they did a six hour pre-roll. And the idea was that this uh, it was a real time uh, depiction of of a, of a six hour flight from Newark to San Francisco on a rival airline. And they called the rival airline Blah Airlines. And it was basically a, the six-hour video of these mannequins sitting on this air, airline having a horrible experience. And it was the most kind of Warholian, bizarre ad that, that I've seen from a major marketer in like the past 10 years. I think this was 2014 this thing came out. And, uh, 
you can still see it. It's still up uh, online, and uh, Eleven, the agency, did a fantastic job with it. And it was just that kind of you know willingness to be weird and to go different places that very few brands have, particularly in the in the airline category. It's just in keeping with um, you know Virgin's entire uh, marketing portfolio. Like they're they're willing to take risks and have some fun, and uh, people love them for it. Yeah, my my favorite thing, if I'm remembering it right, my favorite aspect of that video is that it had this like ambient noise of conversation. And so it would just kind of like cut around to different camera angles of the mannequins. And then you would just hear this kind of almost incoherent, like talking, just gibberish talking. It was it was fun to just flip around through the six hours of video. Totally. And like little weird things happened every sort of half an hour or so. So if you, I don't know who actually watched it. I mean, I, I just kind of skimmed through it and watched some of it. But I don't know. It's just, you know, it's the kind of thing that Virgin has been known for doing is like stuff that you wouldn't expect and stuff that does break through. And they, they do it with all their properties. And and uh yeah, with, with, with Virgin America, um, a lot of great stuff came out of those uh, agencies that were working on that brand. Well, there, there yeah, are... but is Alaska going to adopt the pink? The mood lighting? Know, the mood lighting. More importantly, uh, when Barack Obama and Richard Branson go skydiving mm. in the future, will they go on Alaska Airlines? <laughs> These are all great questions. I'm pretty sure they, they have their own private little jet for that. Probably. Right. Yeah, the um, you know, and the, and the main reason I think this was such a big story in the branding world is because there just aren't many airlines left. Uh, it was a big deal when Virgin America launched, not just because it was you know this bold idea, but because it was very hard, uh, like just getting off off the ground, you know, but like getting into airports, getting gates, like there's a finite number of airlines in America. There's also a million uh, hoops you have to jump through. So like it was funny going back and reading some of the old articles about this because Richard Branson is nowhere in them. Uh, He basically intentionally disengaged from the whole thing because America has these rules that foreign owned companies can't control U.S. based uh, airlines, uh, which I have to admit I didn't really know. And so they made him do all this crazy stuff where like Virgin was only a you know, like a 25% uh, owner of Virgin uh, America. And they had all these U.S.-based investors who, of course, were, were friends with Branson. It didn't take him long after it got approved to, you know, start popping up everywhere as kind of the marketing face of the company. But the moral is it's very, very, very difficult, even with tons of money. Uh, he, he had to, um, you know, for Virgin Atlantic, he had to sell off, I, I think, the Virgin Music Division to to pay for, you know, just the competition that they were having to go through with British Airlines. So, I mean, this is a costly endeavor that very few people can afford to, um, to you know, fight in. And so, you know, I don't know. It's just a matter of time before there's only like three or four airlines left uh, flying out of America. Uh, so we, we shall see. Uh, one last bit of news. Uh, I guess we put this under news because it's kind of an interesting th- thing. It doesn't really fit anywhere. But Grey London uh, has renamed itself. Tim, you wrote about this. This is a, uh, a temporary renaming. Uh, but tell us uh, what they did and why they did it. Sure. So, uh, pretty interesting stunt from Gray London. You know, a lot of agencies and creative people generally. We've talked. We've talked about this on the podcast. They've been kind of wrestling with world events over the past year. You know, it feels a lot like um, fear and isolationism is taking over. Uh, when we were in Cannes last summer, of course, the Brexit vote happened, and then and then the Trump election in November, uh, the refugee crisis, uh, mistrust of immigrants, all this, all these global problems happening. So, Gray London. Um, kind of wanted to show its support for tolerance and diversity. Um, not surprisingly, a lot of agencies are, are sort of left-leaning. Um, and so what they did was they saw parallels uh, in the story of the founding of, of the agency Gray uh, in the U.S. back in 1917, which uh, they're, they're turning 100 this year. 
Uh, the agency was founded by Lawrence uh, Valenstein and Arthur Fatt, who were two uh, Jewish businessmen. And at the time, there was you know a ton of anti-Semitism in New York uh, business, and so these guys um, decided that it might actually cost them business if they put their names on the door. So. Uh, as the story goes, they, they named the agency Gray, supposedly after the color of the wallpaper um, at the office. And so what Gray London is doing now kind of is this symbolic gesture uh, of bravery and, and maybe even to um, start an industry-wide discussion about diversity and tolerance. They're, they're renaming the agency for, for the next 100 days as Valentine and Fat. And everything they do will be under that name. They're changing all their signage, their business cards. They're going to answer the phones that way. They'll, they'll participate in pitches that way. Um, so yeah, it's a, I mean, it's a pretty interesting stunt and you, you could call it kind of self-indulgent maybe. Um, but I think what it's, what saves it from that is that they're, they're also taking various concrete steps, which they announced today as well to improve their own diversity and hopefully that of the, of the ad industry through various endeavors, including education, uh, scholarships. They're going to be transparent about their own workforce, the makeup of their own workforce, things like that. Um, so yeah, I mean, pretty uh, extreme stunt from them and, you know, um, it should be pretty interesting three months for, for Valentine and Fat. We're going to have to talk about them that way now. The uh, And the, this uh, does come on the heels of DDB doing something uh, similar for International Women's Day. Uh, they changed their name briefly. Was that just for one day? Yeah. I they, think it was just for one day. And Adam and Eve did the same thing last year when they called themselves Eve and Adam for, for Women's Day. Hey, man. Three, so, three's a trend. We've got an official trend. <laughs> right. But, you know, Valentine and Fat is probably not the name you know you would choose for your agency if you were if you're starting one today so and it might be a little confusing uh you know along the way but you know it's kind of a it was a neat you know a neat idea because you know when you talk about diversity a lot of times in in this business obviously it's a huge uh, uh, problem in the business but people's eyes kind of glaze over when you talk about it and so this you know this is sort of an attention getting stunt and, and a way into that conversation that i think was pretty clever and they've really done a nice job you know craft wise artistically with the logo and the and they've you know the the photos were pretty pretty cool on our story so um yeah it'll be interesting to see you know if people start talking about this agency and, and the initiatives and whether they succeed Nice. All right. Well, and uh, just to keep Tim talking, we are going to move on to my favorite part of the show, uh, where he recaps the ads worth watching. All right, Tim, we made big promises at the beginning of this episode. So what have you got for us? Well, I said we were going to talk about nuts. So it's the Emerald Nuts campaign from Barton F. Graff, and it's pretty fun. So um, just as a little background, you know, on, on the one hand, um, we've seen a lot of crowdsourcing over the years in advertising. And then separately, we've also seen some brands have fun with Amazon reviews, which are, you know, famously ridiculous in this font of sort of absurdity. And so what Barton F. Graff has done is kind of combine those two. So they took the most stupid, simple, positive review of Emerald Nuts on Amazon, and they made it their official tagline. And the line is, yes, good. No punctuation, just yes, good. So they're putting up out-of-home ads. Um, we saw some uh, photos of some in New York. Uh, they just, you know, giant letters, just yes, good. And there's an online video um, explaining how yes, good came about. Um, so maybe we can just listen to a brief clip of that. Um, it's kind of an explainer video. On June 6th, 2016, a customer wrote a review for Emerald Nuts. It was the single best review for anything ever. It said, Yes, good. Yes, good. The two most positive words ever. And there was only one way to do this review justice. Make it our company tagline. 
for the rest of time. Yes, good. Yes, good. So yeah, so uh, as as the video says, some random person um, just wrote yes, good in the review section, and uh, agency loved it, client loved it, they loved how simple and goofy it was, and so they have this whole um, yes, good campaign. And you know what I like about this is you know it could also be kind of considered navel gazing a little bit. You know, it's advertising for advertising people maybe because it, it mentions the word tagline, which is not really uh, you know a common word. It's it's industry speak. Um, but on the other hand, I think it works because it's actually a pretty solid strategy too. And you know, if you actually scroll through the reviews on Amazon, um, they're all about how addictive emerald nuts are. And you know, Barton F. Graff kind of famously has this pretty strong strategy division. And, and so the, clearly they saw this pretty rabid word of mouth going on in there and uh, they pulled out this line as kind of a fun off-kilter way to kind of reimagine the modern day testimonial. Um, and it's very much in keeping with Barton F. Graff's general ethos of kind of taking you know, familiar marketing tropes and, and kind of hacking them and tweaking them until you have something fresh but still has a solid strategic underpinning. So uh, also they didn't stop, just stop with Yes Good. They actually found a bunch of other funny reviews and they got artists and musicians and designers to make a series of funny videos uh, called The Review of Reviews. And uh, you can watch those on the ad too. And uh, it's just a fun, fresh approach for this brand. You know, I don't think I've heard from this brand until... I don't know if you guys remember the Goobie Silver, Silverstein Super Bowl ad for Emerald Nuts way back in 2007. It had Robert Goulet kind of on the ceiling. Do you remember that one? He's like, <laughs> it was so random. It was also kind of ridiculous humor, which is in keeping with this brand. Uh, it's like Robert Goulet at 3 p.m. every day comes and messes with your stuff. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No. Yeah, it was actually a Super Bowl commercial in 2007. Um, but, you know, it was uh, this campaign this week was, was one of my favorites, and it, it's nice to see. Uh, and by the way, we are going to have um, a Best Ads Ever video with Jerry Graff rolling out on the site later this week. So um, it's a, a good week for our coverage of, of Barton F. Graff. He's just going to be showing like three different ads and at the end of each one just saying, yes, good. That's, that's <laughs> right. going to be the entire video. Exactly. Uh, I, I, for some reason, as soon as I read this, I pictured, I, I like heard the, sl the slogan, in uh, Christina's voice, like in this kind of dubious, uh, almost like Daria kind of a read um, of just like, yes, good. Great. That's perfect. <laughs> That's exactly what my voice is. Let, let me, um, let me hit us with it. Yes. Good. Yep. Okay. See, I pictured very, you kind of writing the simple. good a little longer, but yeah, no, that works. <laughs> it really captures <laughs> the enthusiasm mm -hmm. behind it. And I like that it's in all caps, but you would still just pronounce it like, mm, yes, good. Mm -hmm. Pretty much. Right. Tim, what else you got? Uh, so I also wanted to briefly talk about two other bits of agency work that aren't actually ads, but they're more like product development. Um, you know, every agency wants to get into product development. Um, not that many do. Uh, so we actually wrote an interesting story this week about J. Walter Thompson, New York, uh, which helped to develop uh, an amphibious prosthetic leg for one of its health clients, um, Northwell Health. So um, obviously, you know, a lot of veterans use prosthetics. Uh, apparently, many prosthetics are not usable on land and in water, which is very inconvenient. And so pretty interesting project for JWT. They got in with the client and they used their design skills kind of in a different way uh, to create this new product that uh, could be could help out a lot of veterans. So that was pretty interesting. And then on a different level, I um, also wanted to talk about uh, something that Lapiz, the, the uh, unit of Leo Burnett, did for the Mexico Tourism Board, which um, they put on their lab coats and they figured out a way to vaporize tequila into a cloud and then have it rain down on people. 
<laughs> in a tent that they set up in Berlin, of all places, where they had this activation um, this winter to try to get Germans to vacation in Mexico. So um, obviously not as poignant as the as JWT's work in prosthetics, um, but um, a tequila cloud, that's, that's new. <laughs> <laughs> i'm not sure i'm not sure uh if i how that activate activation worked like how could how could you drink the tequila without getting completely covered in tequila i'm not totally sure but um kind of funny i, I thought it was uh pretty interesting stuff i do mean you, if you're you... gonna drink tequila you should just be prepared to like be messy like maybe they're just assuming that you're in it you're in it to win it That's and get true, yeah. tequila all over you i guess the lack of uh, a, a tequila partner, a branded tequila partner, maybe speaks volumes in, in this case, but who knows? <laughs> yeah, for, I, it, for no good reason, this reminded me of that stunt like a few years ago. I want to say it was for an energy drink, but they put a bunch of um, like dry ice or something into a, a big pool to make it look all neat. And, and they had a bunch of people in there, and it was supposed to be this kind of awesome rave pool party looking thing but it, it actually almost killed everybody <laughs> you know oh, because God. it was like this toxic cloud and it was just one of those things <laughs> oh, where you Lord. could tell they had thought really long and hard about the aesthetics but not the uh the literal like what it's like to sit in a cloud of you know what whether it was carbon dioxide or uh oh, man. whatever the gas was but yeah i remember like a ton of people got uh, i'm not comparing that to this fine activation well, <laughs> a, a tequila cloud probably could kill you also if it <laughs> enveloped you but uh scientists were so the the killer tequila cloud is in a a future movie but they were so busy asking (laughs) if they could they didn't stop to ask if they should um most importantly we finally have an answer to the question do you even vape bro (laughs) (laughs) we get it you vape tequila uh all right um and uh, and the one we've all been waiting for. Uh, yeah, well, I'll let Christina talk about this one. It's <laughs> it's uh, Mother London's uh, giant boob. So Christina, take it away. We made it to the boob. Um, so yeah, this was Mother London's uh, Mother's Day uh, stunt. They put a giant boob on top of a building in um, short in the the Shoreditch area of London, and it's sort of to make a statement about how um, you know it's ridiculous that people feel judged when they're Uh, feeding their children, whether that's by bottle or by the boob. Um, So, uh, you know, I I don't know exactly how a giant inflatable boob really conveys that message without the poster that was attached to a building underneath, but it's certainly eye-catching and uh, for some people reminiscent of that uh, Woody Allen movie uh, where they're talking about sex and there's that image of Woody Allen next to a giant boob. Do you know what I'm talking about? Everything you always wanted to know about sex. Yeah, I think, yeah, yeah, yeah. That's it. Um, uh, that's a good callback. I, I forgot about that one. I did too, uh, until until a friend of Chris Heine's uh, pointed that out on Twitter. Um, but yeah, there was a very prominent nipple on this uh, giant boob. So it, you know. it is the it is it, the most like accurate nipple, like like te- almost terrifyingly <laughs> accurate. Uh, by it's I mean I don't even want to describe it because it's just going to sound great and I think it's actually a really cool occupation. But you know what I mean? It's like this thing could have been really cartoonish, and it is most certainly mm-hmm. not. <laughs> I mean, if you're going to make a terrifyingly accurate, David Greiner. 
<laughs> you should put your. They're gonna put your uh, review on their next marketing materials. Well, it's like it's <laughs> like don't, accurate. Don't get me wrong. Like I think it's a really cool thing. I agree with Christina that it's questionable how well it ties in with the message uh, without context. But I think they count on people like us writing articles that that deliver mm-hmm. that context. Um, but at the same time, when I saw it, I was like, wow, they really, uh, yeah, they really went all out with that uh, with that nibble. Ooh, yeah. Some sometimes I think like big activations like this or. Does this really count as an activation? Because it's just a giant inflatable boob. Um, but sort of, you know, big things like this that are very image-centric are just sort of like, how many people can we get to post on social media about this giant boob that they saw? And then, you know, of course, there's a hashtag and you learn more about it. But it's mm-hmm. like, when you're just looking at that giant, giant boob, do you know? Do well, you know? And the issue was was whether women should feel free to breastfeed in public if they so like it. And I would love to introduce everyone involved in this project to a Facebook group called Park Slope Parents. <laughs> no. <laughs> no. Oh, God. You've heard of this group. Oh, I have heard of this group. They could debate this topic for hours and hours. Mm-hmm. Many sensibilities would be offended. Mm-hmm. Well, it is a big topic of debate. It's been so for years. So I think just putting up a, a giant boob and like kicking off that debate again, it was pretty pretty easy to do. I mean, clearly we should just judge everyone for every decision they make about rearing their children because you know we're all doing it in public and we c- can all shame each other. So you know, <laughs> right. at the end of the day. Yeah. So <laughs> what else? Uh, oh, David, one last uh, ad worth watching. Um, you wrote up this fun uh, tourism stunt out in Georgia. So uh, the, the former Soviet Republic, not the American Georgia. Yeah. Uh, so, so tell us so about that one. The other Georgia. So uh, this is a, uh, I, I thought a really clever idea. And normally when you see something like this, you really don't believe it. Uh, and I certainly was skeptical, healthily skeptical. I think Tim and I both were. But basically here's the deal. Um, the Republic of Georgia... Uh, which is between, if you cannot picture it, it's between Turkey and Russia. Um, it's uh, it's only about four million people. It is not a huge. It's a physically a pretty large place, but it is it is not a hugely populous country. Uh, but they were celebrating. Uh, they had done the math and figured out that they were uh, about to get their six millionth tourist. Um, and the uh, Georgia's had kind of a, a difficult uh, past, uh, or, you know. A, They've had a, a rough few, a rough go of it since uh, both you know under the USSR and and after and so uh, you know this was a a positive very positive time for them and so they were uh, getting their six millionth tourist and they decided that when that person arrived they would treat them like a VIP they would give them this really great experience and that person would get to have dinner with the prime minister and so they selected uh, supposedly at random although they admitted that basically they figured out which airplane they wanted to pick someone from. That their six millionth, their math said that the six millionth person would be on that plane, and then they admitted they did kind of like pick the best person on that plane that would kind of work for what they were doing. Uh, but his name was uh, Jesper. It's spelled like Jesper with a J. But he's Dutch. His name's Jesper Black, and uh, he is a uh, kind of a video guy. Uh, he's good-looking Dutch guy, uh, very comfortable on camera, uh, so really kind of the ideal pick. That said, he was certainly no YouTube superstar. He told me that he had about 100 views on his videos before uh, before all this <laughs> happened, uh, so it's not like they picked, you know, an influencer for all this to happen with. He's an interesting guy, uh, grew up in the Netherlands, traveled a lot. He lives in Barcelona right now, 
and works in like customer service and then does videos on the side. Uh, but uh, he showed up thinking that his friend was going to pick him up. And uh, instead, there was a dude waiting with his name on a card. And when he got to customs, they gave him a, champ- a, a wine bottle or champagne bottle. And then uh, and then the guy was waiting for him with a uh, with a card saying to kind of get in this car with me. And he thought briefly about it before deciding. And let's listen to a little bit of his own take of, of kind of what happened next, because he admits that when there's a strange man telling you to get in a car in a former Soviet state, you do think twice a little bit. Uh, so here, here's him describing that. We walk outside and there's this big black Mercedes S-Class waiting. And he says, he opens the door and he, you know, makes sure that I get in. So I'm like, I have this tiny conversation in my head where I'm like, if they're gonna steal my organs, would they use a Mercedes S-Class? And I'm like, no, I don't think so. So so I get into the car. But it it turned out everything was okay. Uh, He got taken to dinner with the prime minister. There was a big performance. There was this meal uh, where people in Georgia had gotten to vote on which dishes they wanted him to be served that best represented the country. And then he had this, I think, four-day uh, kind of epic journey. Uh, you know, so just a really fun effort. Uh, we, we talked to the agency uh, behind it and to, uh, and to Jesper himself. And uh, it, just one of those where you're glad to see that they put in all the effort to pull this off and also to do it for real without hiring actors and without kind of scamming the whole thing. So Good on uh, Georgia Tourism uh, and good on Jesper for going along with it. Uh, and, uh, yeah, it was a fun one. Check it out on adweek.com uh, in our brand He's, he's going to be famous now. He's going to be a star yeah, as he's, a YouTube influencer. He's, he's going to get big enough to, uh, to create some objectionable content soon. <laughs> <laughs> That's the dream, right? You just hope you can that get is. to the point where you can offend brands. <laughs> exactly. Just don't ask them about the Holocaust. Yeah, yeah just keep, keep your jokes uh <laughs> Uh, family friendly there yes we're all right uh well it is time to move on to our big discussion of the week Uh, this week we're going to be talking about our cover story on cmto the the rise of the cmto and uh let's get to it all right so as i mentioned this was a uh this week's cover story in adweek was a list of of the kind of the the rising cmtos these are these are chief marketing officers they you know that's generally their title uh, but they are ones who have, um, you know, kind of big, built a reputation for being uh, very uh, tech, fr- you know, tech savvy, I guess is the best way to put it. Um, and, uh, you know, it's a really diverse list. We've got, you know, everything from, I think, Century 21 and Geico and, and all sorts of different brands. On the cover, uh, we've, got the, we've got Linda Boff, uh, the CMO of GE, um, and a really kind of fascinating uh Profile of her, just a brief profile from Katie Richards, our staff writer, about uh, everything GE's been doing. They have an incredible podcast series called The Message. Uh, they've got, you know, just stellar advertising, stellar content. They're really a perfect example of a brand that you wouldn't expect to be as interesting as they are, uh, but really are just kind of clicking in every single aspect of digital. So, obviously, kind of an easy choice uh, for, um, you know, for who to put on the cover uh, of our CMTO issue. Uh, Christina, you wrote uh, some of this. Uh, who did you profile and tell us a little bit about them? Oh, sure. Um, I profiled uh, Julia Golden uh, for Lego. Um, and she has basically, you know, been sort of taking a brand that like, like an 85-year-old brand that doesn't really need any help um, trying to get people to know what it is or buy it. You know, they've also had those wildly popular um movies over the last couple of years but you know to 
to take a very um, physical brand and adapt it to a digital world. And in doing so, they kind of created um, this platform called Lego Life, um, which is essentially, um, as The Verge dubbed it, uh, like Instagram, but for Lego. So it's like a bunch of little kids on like their own Instagram sort of thing where they're sharing all their different Lego creations. And in just a month, they were able to get a million kids to be on it, which is pretty chill. Um, but yeah, I mean, there are a whole slew of people on this list who were able to take things that uh, you wouldn't necessarily expect to be all that um, tech friendly and make them exactly that yeah let's uh, let's talk a little bit about geico too they've come up quite a bit so we featured ted ward who's the vp of marketing for geico um i, I feel like tim we've talked most about uh their unskippable tactics which while that's very specific and how they've kind of hacked and scammed the the system for uh for skippable youtube ads to actually make them worth watching it, it's certainly not the only thing they've done uh, I, this guy uh and ted's been he he goes back to uh, the caveman's crib, uh, like pretty old school uh, Geico. I mean, that that is literally uh, ten years ago now. Um, I, I, how would you describe kind of Geico's approach to digital? Uh, you know, it just seems like they are head and shoulders just above just any any competitor in that insurance space. Yeah, well, we recognize Ted first of all. Ted's been there for thirty three years in, uh, running advertising for Geico, so he's kind of seen this. You know, he's really shepherded this brand um, to what they are today, and you know. As we said in the story, they're not just ahead of the curve in digital. They they kind of flipped the script. And what what I meant by that was, uh, you know, so un, unskippable. Uh, that that was followed by fast forward. That and then that was followed uh, by the current pre roll campaign, which is called Crushed, which I'm sh I'm sure people have seen, where uh, it takes uh, the, the the Geico logo ends up crushing, like literally crushing the scene of of people, whatever they're doing, and it kind of comes comes across the screen. And that campaign was made for digital, but I, I saw it on The Voice recently, and, and you know, it's this total reversal of what the typical flow of, of campaign adaptation is, which is normally you come up with a TV idea and you translate it for, for all these other mediums, including the web. And uh, you know, basically what, uh, what Ted's done is, is encourage his agencies, including the Martin Agency, to really come up with digital campaigns. And uh, one of them was so good that they put it on TV. So that was really kind of cool. And, and you mentioned Caveman's Crib. You know, this was going back 10 plus years, really in the infancy of digital advertising. And, uh, you know, the Caveman's Crib was just, you know, they had this TV campaign uh, with the cavemen, you know, the whole so easy a caveman can do it. They had, and they took this campaign, which was initially just in television, and they, they, they started putting extended versions and, and added bonus content just on Geico.com. You know, this was before really like YouTube was very big and, uh, and, and, you know, it was pretty, it was really low tech and silly, but it got a lot of viral attention at the time. And what Ted told me was, you know, it really convinced them that, um, you know, extending creative to longer executions or different executions really pays off for them. So you, you see it all, all over their efforts. Now, if they have a TV ad, like the iced tea, uh, lemonade commercial, um, they, they've got uh, a whole series with Ice T online of him kind of doing recipes with with, with lemonade and stuff. And then they had that raccoon commercial uh, a few months back. 
uh, where the raccoons are kind of like rifling through the garbage and they did a whole kind of you know typical like foodie recipe series with with raccoons kind of cooking up what they found in the garbage so they you know they take and they also have digital only campaigns they have this one that's very strange called little advice uh you have to just check it out on their youtube i couldn't even describe it um but they you know they they do craft these whole digital series now and they're they're not just one-offs um and so, and to Ted, I mean, it's it's just a, a whole different format. I mean, he thinks of it as we, we create a TV commercial for, you know, 52-inch televisions, and we create this other stuff for, you know, a three-inch uh, three screen, and they have to be different. And to break through, they should be different. And so I think, uh, you know, Geico really is kind of ahead of the pack when it comes to a lot of this stuff. One that I wanted to talk about, too, that I, I don't think people would normally think about, Century 21, uh, we, we featured uh, Carl Whitley, uh, who is their their CMO? And they've done some really interesting digital projects. Just kind of, uh, you know, obviously millennials are home buyers. Uh, you know, it's not as young of an audience as I think a lot of people think of. And so they've really uh, done some pretty interesting digital initiatives. One of my favorites, they did an adulting 101 uh, site that has a, a quiz about how well are you adulting, uh, which is, you know, a little cheesy, but at the same time, it's actually pretty well done. Uh, and they, they did a campaign around uh, Father's Day called Give Dad Nothing, uh, because with the joke being that dads always say that they don't want anything. Uh, and so it was basically this whole like 360 real estate site about nothing Arizona. Uh, the town they ended up getting they said 204 million earned media impressions from all the all the publicity they got from the give dad nothing campaign uh they to to kind of increase uh voter turnout in the election they created a a century 21 listing for the white house uh before the election so it's just you know you just gotta love when, when you get a legacy brand like that to me that's the real test of of a tech savvy cmo is can they just find new digital initiatives that don't necessarily reinvent the brand, but that give people something to talk about that, that normally you wouldn't just sit around talking about Century 21. You know, it's it's not going to totally. come up. Yeah, they uh, they put Walter White's house from Breaking Bad on. on, oh, yeah. on they, they put a listing for that on, on Century 21, too, and it got all this viral play. And that was really smart. Did it still have a pizza on the roof in like the? I think so. I think it might have. Yeah. Um, Patrick, I'm curious if you've seen a trend with obviously when you have marketers becoming more and more digital savvy. Like when I was in the agency world, the agency was expected to be the the digital thought leaders, uh, and brands were, had been kind of slow to bring in that kind of talent. I think that certainly changed over the last decade, uh, especially in the last few years. How is that changing the expectations and the difficulties for agencies uh, when they when they pitch a client or when they uh, work with a client? You know how how is the baseline of digital expectations changing for agencies? Well, I think it's kind of telling that Adweek no longer names a digital agency of the year because the assumption is just that any competent agency is going to be up to date on all things digital on all platforms. And there's that assumption, too, when an agency is pitching any given piece of business, because even these seemingly antiquated companies or, or at least traditional companies are, are expected to be everywhere at all times. And it's on the strategic level i mean think about all the stuff we were talking about at the beginning of this podcast you you can't be expected to hold the position of cmo at any business that is an active advertiser and not at least have a basic knowledge of this and and what's going on you can't just call up your media agency and ask them to explain it to you right so i think that that's it's just kind of an evolving uh, standard in terms of what p 
people are expected to bring to the rhetorical table when they're seeking new business. But I, I feel like the accountability has also changed in the sense that, you know, 18 years ago, if a digital campaign went wrong, you could just point at the agency and say, ah, those guys screwed up. They led me wrong. And, you know, people would generally kind of be like, yeah, we, we need new agency. Uh, now, I, I don't I think the buck kind of, if, even if it doesn't stop with the CMO, it at least is shared by the CMO, you know, that they, they they just can't plead that kind of ignorance anymore of like, oh, the agency came to us with a digital campaign and they sold us and, and it didn't work. Um, you, you know, now it's it's on them too. And so they have to have that level of digital smarts and they have to be able to talk to publications like ours or to go on stage. I mean, more people would rather turn out for a speech by a CMO talking about tech trends than they would from the head of digital uh, at some agency. You know, <laughs> those people aren't as nearly as in high demand for on the public speaking circuit. Um, I want to talk about a few of the other companies just real quick, and uh, we're not going to rattle off everybody and read all these uh, you know, very uh, fascinating profiles uh, on the podcast, but I encourage you to check out uh, the uh, CMTO, the Tech Savvy CMOs uh, list on Adweek right now. Uh, but we've got uh, Hilton Worldwide, Geraldine Kalpin, uh, the CMO of Hilton Worldwide, uh, uh, Seth Farman, uh, the CMO of Spotify. Uh, so pretty much everything Spotify is doing these days seems to be uh, kicking butt. Uh, we've got the uh, EVP and CMO of Target, Rick Gomez, uh, who's obviously has a huge reputation in the retail industry. Uh, Marie Galen Merrill, uh, I'm probably butchering the pronunciation of her name, but she's CMO of L'Oreal USA. Uh, and um, Alicia Hatch uh, from Deloitte Digital. Uh, there's a few others, but uh, you know, definitely check out the list. is is very diverse, and it's just kind of fascinating to see the the changing landscape of what is expected of CMOS. Uh, so thank you all for for you know coming in and and talking about some of those. I encourage everybody to check that out. Uh, and also, if you have any questions about uh, or, or just want to tell us which marketers you're looking up to or want to know anything about anything we've covered on the podcast, uh, drop us an email. We're at uh, podcast at adweek.com podcast at adweek.com. And uh, you can hit us on Twitter. We're just at adweek on Twitter. I'm at Griner, G-R-I-N-E-R. And uh, we're, we're all pretty easy to find on there. Uh, we've got several big features coming up soon. Got our political power, power players list of basically media figures who've risen in prominence since the election uh, by being kind of observers and commentators in that space. We've got our list of uh, Gen Z influencers, uh, which should be a fascinating one of who is kind of influencing the next the next generation of consumers. Uh, and we've got our digital feature about Atlanta's uh, thriving brand and marketing scene and culture scene and just about every scene in Atlanta seems to be thriving right now. So that's going to be coming out April 10th. Our theme music is by Home. This week's episode was produced by Christina Monlos and edited by Kevin Eck. Thank you, Christina. Thank you, Kevin. Uh, please take a moment, if you have not already, to leave us a review on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, wherever you get your podcasts, even if you just give us however many stars you think it's merited or feel like leaving a full review, you certainly can. Uh, that means a lot to us personally, but it also helps new audiences discover the podcast. And, uh, you know, let us know on Twitter what you think. We love hearing. We've been hearing from a lot of people lately about who have kind of recently discovering the podcast and are going back and catching up. And I feel bad for them having to plow through dozens of episodes, but uh, it means a lot uh, to have new, new listeners, new followers like that so thank you to everybody uh, and we will talk to you next week hey there are you ready to elevate your personal brand or company meet viral growth your one-stop shop for video content and audience building imagine growing your brand organically on social media without the hassle of editing videos for hours with viral growth 
it's a breeze. They handle the brainstorming, scripting, and editing while you simply just hit record. And don't worry about your niche. They cater to everyone, from business and marketing to health and wellness. Are you ready to make waves in the social media realm? Visit viralgrowth.io and use code ADWEEK, that's A-D-W-E-E-K, all lowercase, and get 10% off your plan.